We want to tread a, um, a steady line not to hold back creativity and not churn out the same thing all the time, but we don't want designers to spend thousands and thousands of pounds creating yeah. something that when goes into production or manufacturing, there's no margin left in it for them. You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills and I'm on a one-woman mission to save UK manufacturing. I invite you to join me every Tuesday and Friday when I'll be sharing the stories behind some of the best British-made brands and UK manufacturers and offering you advice on making in the UK. Let's crack on with the show. Welcome to episode 69 of the Make It British podcast. How are you this week? I hope you have been enjoying the series of talks that we had at Make It British Live, which we're making available to everyone on this podcast. We've still got a few to go and then we'll be back to the old format again of an interview on a Tuesday and me doing a solo show on a Friday. But today's episode is a panel discussion that took place at the event, which I know you're going to find really useful if you're thinking about setting up a brand or working with a UK fashion or textile manufacturer. And there's burning questions you want to know, like why are minimum order quantities 300 pieces plus when I'm only making in the UK? And why is it taking six months for my product to turn up? So in this discussion which I chaired at the events, you are going to have some of those questions answered. We have got Adam Robertson from Colopsia Collective and Diana Kakar from Mays London, who both of whom you may have heard on previous episodes, and also David Williams from Stoll GB and the Stoll Design Knitwear Centre in Leicester. And he has got some great advice for people who are developing knitwear in the UK. So I hope you enjoy this discussion. Please, will you leave me a little review on iTunes if you are enjoying this podcast? It means a lot to me. I read every single one and I would love it if you could just spare a couple of minutes to do so. Let's get on to the panel discussion about small batch manufacturing. David, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Uh, tell everyone a little bit about what your background is and what your company does. Okay. Good morning. I'm David Williams. I'm from Stoll in Leicester. Um, we are, in, to begin with, we are the sellers of knitting machines. So what I started to realise was that uh, as the textile industry demised in the UK, there was a need for a design centre and uh, access to knitting equipment. So I began with one machine and began to build up a a design centre where small brands... Actually, let me stop. My initial idea was that I would get all the big brands (laughs) to visit. And uh, this soon, this idea soon wore off as I realised that they had budget for shopping trips in New York, swatch samples, but no budget to actually come and make samples for garments that they would actually sell. So this void of these big companies was quickly filled by small brands and designers. Everybody from complete startups who had no idea about knitwear but then small companies that were finding it extremely difficult to access factories. They would telephone factories and saying, what's your minimums? And it would be 300, 400. And there was no way for small brands and designers to access anything to do with knitwear. So hence we started and we opened it and they came. So uh, that's where we are now. Brilliant. And Diana? Yes. Um, my name is Diana Kaka. I am the founder of Maze London. Um, we are a high-end garment manufacturer based in East London. Uh, my background is in high-end luxury fashion, and I work. I worked with small designers and big designers um, in a in a very different format than what I'm doing right now. So I, I'm from India. I studied there, but my first job was in Sydney, where I was working with. Um, a designer or a brand actually, and we were working with Lian Fung, which is one of um, 
big buying house across the world. And my experience into designing was always through manufacturing. So I always looked at what needs to be made and how can we make it and, um, and what's the best way we can make it without losing money for the designers, for the brands. And then somehow made my way to London and um, worked with designers and now set up my own business. And that's what we're doing. So we work with uh, high-end luxury designers, quite a few London Fashion Week designers. We do the sampling and the production. Um, our factory is in East London. It's a fairly fairly good-sized factory for um, a small business like ours. And um, we also work with emerging designers and we help them as an extension of their design process because we can offer patent-cutting services and product development and we um, help them launch their collections. And that's what we do. Brilliant. Thank you. And now Adam. Yes, uh, I'm Adam from Colopsia Collective. We are a batch manufacturer of uh, textiles goods. It's primarily accessories and some women's clothing as well. Uh, we work from a standardized catalog that you can find on our website. Uh, everything we do is set up to make the process of ordering kind of base units as simple and effective as possible for our clients. Um, so, yeah, just trying to take a lot of the challenge and, and uh, yeah, difficultness out of the, those kind of, you know, simple items that most, most brands and, and retailers need. And we work with everyone from kind of startups right the way up to people like the V&A uh, and Harris Tweed and people like that as well. So, Adam, your background um, is not as a manufacturer, is it? So no. you actually saw there was a need. Do you want to tell everyone about why you set up Glossier? Yes, completely. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm a printmaker originally, uh, and uh, sort of 10 years ago, coming out of university and trying to set up your own brand and get stuff made was just impossible, as, as I think we've all touched on. So with the help of BFAB, who we uh, share a stand with at this event, uh, we started looking at what the needs were for, for small designers and and makers uh, and it just seemed that that process of going from I have an idea to I just want a base collection out there was just it was too long it was too complicated the amount of waste involved was ridiculous uh, and most of the small designers we were working with were ending up with the same products as each other so we'd have people email us and go I've been developing a, a, a product and I need to come in to talk to you about it yeah, sure sure and you'd have five or six emails backwards and forwards and what they'd bring in is a cushion cover <laughs> and you go okay you probably didn't need to spend six months prototyping that we probably could have gone straight into so we, we just said look we'll offer up these base units that most people need just pick them send us the fabric and we'll make them up and we'll just take all of that kind of difficulty out uh, and from there it just kind of grew and grew and what we found is even for the bigger clients it was that ease of use that they were craving because again if you've got a huge catalogue of stuff that you need to be designing and making and putting through all, all those normal processes you know when you then get to small accessory bags to hit different price points you don't have to go through all of that again for those base products so just put them through our website and done <laughs> so you've standardized what you do yes diana with what you do it's quite different because there's very different products you make for your all your clients all within the gar all in garments but not so standardized so if there's an someone that comes to you that's new as a new designer what do they need to bring to you in order for your relationship with them to be successful? Uh, that's, that's one of our biggest challenges uh, because every yeah. product is different. And I guess that's a challenge the fashion industry faces as a whole. Um, what we expect from designers is to come with a really detailed spec sheet, a tech pack, which has all the information, some kind of thought that they have put into the garment themselves where they know how they want to construct this garment, how they want to finish this garment. Is it lined? Is it not lined? Um, have you ordered enough fabric for that sample or not? Uh, you've looked at your pattern or if, if you have a pattern, then you would know how much fabric you need. But if you do not have a pattern, we can help you with the pattern services. And that's where we uh, sink in and we say, this is how much fabric you need. We don't say you need more fabric or you need less fabric. This is exactly how much you need. We always suggest 10% extra so that you know there could be a mistake in the fabric print. So you have a little room to play around with it. And as a principle, that's how we're trying to help the planet. And we are being more conscious of less wastage, and all these scraps go back to the designers. So yeah. we expect them to have given good thought to their product that they want us to make, because it just comes down to communication. And if, if in a way you know what you want, we can help you realize that. But it's very difficult if we don't know what you want and we should be getting into your head 
to get the information out <laughs> and then give you a product that you're really, really happy with. So David, it's in knitwear, much more technical, super technical, because I've seen, if anyone hasn't had a chance to go and see the machine um, on David's stand, it's amazing. I mean, back in the day, knitting machines would just pull that little yeah. thing across. We've moved on a little bit since exactly. then. Exactly. So. so how does someone, someone that wants to make knitwear, they could be making it, you know, they could be working as a buyer and making it in volume, or they could be a designer starting out who doesn't necessarily know any of the technicalities, where do they start and how do you well, kind of um, we, We've faced them? very much the same challenges as the rest of the panel. Um, and we've worked very hard to get a process in place that allows access to the centre. And now we work, um, unless somebody is fully versed in knitwear, we try to ask them to come for initial consultation, which lasts mm. three hours. And during these three hours, we establish what the end goal will be. Mm. We, if they have yarn, we will knit swatches so we can create a stitch quality fabric that is what they want to go forward with. If they like, we can talk about how commercial this garment is and is going to be, but we want to tread a, um, a steady line not to hold back creativity and not churn out the same thing all the time, but we don't want designers to spend thousands and thousands of pounds creating yeah. something that when goes into production or manufacturing, there's no margin left in it for them. Yeah, and it's not commercial yeah. and it's, it's commercial. expensive, yeah. 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 So, it's a, a balancing act between creativity and actual the practicalities of making the thing. Exactly. Yeah, so, we're so talking of cost then, um, how expensive is it? So, for instance, with you, Adam, if someone, um, someone wants to sort of get something off the ground, what yes. sort of funding do they need behind them? How much is it going to cost? Wow. It's, Give us the nitty gritty. Oh, oh got it. It's, I mean, manufacturing, <laughs> manufacturing in the UK is never going to be the cheapest way of doing things. Um, we, it's the right way of doing it. it, it completely, well done, completely yeah, and utterly is the right way of doing things. <laughs> right way of doing um, things. Um, yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, that's... Exactly, and it, but it, it's that thing of, it really depends. We, uh, that's why we have the standardized catalogue of products as well. It means you can start from one unit up. It, we don't mind, we can go from that low. Of course, it's gonna cost you more, but it means you're not having to go in with huge amounts of fabric or resources to do that. We'd much rather you order smaller orders and more often. Uh, it's better for our cash flow, it makes everything work easier for everyone. So we've tried to keep that uh, as low as possible. I mean, our, our cheapest products may be six pounds-ish, and they go up to sort of 25, um, to 30 for the bags and then right up to sort of 60 or 70 for the garments. Uh, but it really depends what you're looking for. There, there's ways around it. Uh, we'll always work with people to try and make it work. We've got a few clients. We agree a total uh, quantity for a year. Say it's, you know, 1,000 units, 500 units, and we give them the discount for that. And then we break that up over the 12 months. So we'll, we'll do what we can uh, to get that to work. But it, it is, it's very important. I mean, pricing is so, so, so important. Uh, and all of our pricing is on our website. So it's completely upfront and clear. Everyone knows what they're getting and everyone gets that same pricing, whether you're one of the big people we work with or a new designer. So it, we try and keep it as fair and sort of, uh, yeah. So what you've said just there is if someone commits to a long-term period with you a yes. year or so, you'll give them a better price because it's a, they'll commit of, of, to you. Of course, yeah, yeah. If, if you're in a position to do that, if you can say even 100 units, look, over the 12 months, I can't get them all now, I just need 20 now, but I can do 100 over the year, we can work something out. Well, we, yeah, we want to make this as accessible as we can within the framework that, that we have. So, David, you cringe at that question. So, setting no. up a knitwear brand or working in knitwear, we're talking more expensive to get something off the ground. Um, I think because it begins with a cone of yarn. Yeah. And um, we ask our clients to, to bring the yarn with them. Um, brass tacks, our costs are... <laughs> we have various levels of technician. So, yeah. we have some... Uh, technicians that are extremely highly skilled who have been in the industry for over 30 years uh, who could develop everything from uh, we've knitted stents for hearts we've knitted shoes you know with bag bags technical fabrics and then our junior technicians which we've trained in Germany for at least three months they handle mainly the, the fashion side so for a, a, to work with one of our technicians for a day is £240. And for that, you get sole use of that technician and the equipment. And we have everything in-house from all the knitting machines, all the linking machines. We have industrial washing machines for milling fabric. 
So really, it's a one-stop shop. So someone could walk out, come in for a day and walk out with a ready-made knitwear collection? Definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not. Diana? I think, I think there is this preconceived notion of how easy fashion is and um, fashion is hard work and everyone who's in the industry knows, you know, it's literally sweat, blood, tears, everything. you weren't originally from a fashion background, no, were you? Um, so I did economics and then decided to study fashion after doing economics. So fashion is harder than economics? 100%. Love that. <laughs> I think, Someone yeah, tweet 100%. that, please. I wish, I wish I did economics and, like, you know, did an MBA and I would be sitting, getting a comfortable job. But the satisfaction that, you know, I get out of creating something beautiful, not only for people around us, but for someone to walk out with a product that I'm creating. And the skill, that's the main thing. It's not just a talent, but it's a combination of talent and skill, which... Um, is important. I think I, I don't regret it. Mm. Um, can't say that about my parents, though. But <laughs> David, you weren't in fashion or textiles originally either, were no, you? No, I trained as a chef. Brilliant. <laughs> so it wasn't so trendy back then. Though, so. yeah, Time for a change of tact. Yeah, but you don't regret it for a moment. No. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people nowadays are talking about small um, mass. So. Bespoke products, so mm. rather than mass um, manufacturing, making individual pieces. We all know it's very difficult to get one-of-a-kind products made. Do all of your facilities make that possible? So if someone wants to make a one-of-a-kind product, they could do so. Yes, Adam. Yeah, to an extent. Uh, we, I mean, we talk. We like to talk about small batches, um, one-offs. Our turnaround times are never going to be. We're never going to be able to be quick enough to do sort of custom one-offs for for individuals. It really. So, what would the turnaround time be? You're looking at about four weeks. Yeah. um, Just so we can, you know, get things in. And again, because we work a lot with the digital printers, a lot of their lead time is about two weeks, ten days. So that means if you're going through both processes, you've got about six-week lead time, which we think's you know fairly. So do you think sometimes there's unrealistic expectations from from anyone (laughs) making in the UK, thinking, oh, if it's made in the UK, must be able to get it to. Yesterday, uh, massively. I think there is with, with with custom stuff in general. Uh, you know, this, this idea of making on demand, like we can almost like press a button and stuff magically appears. <laughs> it, it's it's not like that. I mean, there's there's still a lot of planning and effort that needs to go into it. I, I think it almost seems to be make on demand and custom stuff almost is like it's seen as being easier when it, in fact it's the the most difficult way you can do business. Yeah. David, can you do one of a kind with parameters? Mm. So. The, the, the parent company that build the machines are now working towards what we call this 4.0. Yeah. And uh, customised product is one of the biggest growth areas. And of course, when you're making garments, you get less returns because it's made especially, especially for you. So now, with the likes of Unmade, who have spoken to yeah. you now, um, there are ways of specking a garment and making certain elements of that garment bespoke. Mm. So um, I think now, if you look on Ralph Lauren's website, they've got now a sweater where you can influence areas of the sweater. So the base block is the same. We might change stripe, we might put, I think this was quite a preppy uh, sweater and you you can manipulate this on the website. Mm. And this technology, I think, is coming very fast. Uh, it's important that you design within the technology to allow these things to happen. But in theory, everybody sitting here could have a sweater made with their name on it, um, and the knitting factory could receive the program, and one by one, they would knit different, different, a different, a different I, sweater. I think that's a good point about within parameters is probably yeah. the best phrase I've, I've heard to, to use around that because we're working with um, Strathclyde at the moment on uh, virtual reality software for ordering as well, which should mean from a manufacturing point of view, our clients could, could see in real real space what they were doing, the same sort of idea, yeah. pick zip colours and things like that. So those elements that are already changeable could be changed, yeah. but you wouldn't be able to do a completely new product each time. It'd be, you know, you could change the lining colours and, and the zips and stuff like that, or a clip on or something like that yeah. so it's definitely parameters is the is the key diana you're you can probably do much more one in fact a lot of your customers probably do ask just for one so we are b2b design. which means yeah. that means we work with businesses so yes they can ask for a one-off as their proto 
uh, and we can turn that around. It does come at a cost because um, we don't work from a template as such because they would have either provided us with a pattern or some kind of work. In theory, everything that they are making is a one of a kind until it goes into production. Yeah. And once it's produced, then you know it's produced. But we're not talking um, many units here. We're talking, so our minimums are 30 units, and which sometimes some designers find it too hard already to meet. Um, but we have worked with designers where we've just made one sample which their client was wearing further on for a special event and it was completely made to her measurement. Um, the crystals were put in the right places so that it was most flattering for her body. So we, we are very flexible, but it does come at a cost. So all of you have set up your manufacturing units or factories, whichever you prefer to call them, within the last few years. And I'm seeing that more and more. Since I first set up Make It British nine years ago now, I'm seeing more young people um, <laughs> <laughs> setting up uh, manufacturing I'll units. <laughs> and I tell a lot of brands as well that, that um, you know, why if you can sew, why are you not making this yourself if you can't find a factory? Mm. So... How much does it actually cost to set up a manufacturing unit doing each of your oh. different product types? Um, Adam, what was the investment? What, what oh. could the original investment be to start with if you wanted to make your own products well, yourself? Ours was kind of a very long journey through that. And we, we literally started, we, we, had a, we were artists, artists in residence in a shopping centre uh, in Scotland. Uh, and they gave us a tiny little unit in the back of the centre, which they used to keep skips in. And then they cleared the skips out <laughs> and put us in there. So it was a windowless cube and we had two domestic sewing machines and an Ikea table. Oh, wow. And that's how we started. And which we just built nothing. it up. Yeah. It was just ridiculous. And I mean, our first order was for the, the Dovecot, which is a big gallery in, um, in Edinburgh. Uh, and Nina, my business partner, made 400 bags in a weekend on a domestic machine and a domestic overlocker. I don't know ne quite how we did it. Nina's here. Give us yeah. a wave, Nina. Where are you? <laughs> Adam's partner there. So, she yeah, should she should. She's, well, she's yeah. the brains behind everything. Um, but yeah, so we started for like 400 quid or something Did like you? that. Yeah, and then just built it up over time. Yeah. But we've probably put, you know, 60,000 into machinery into, now. Yeah, into that sort yeah. of stuff. And, and just general websites and fit out and all the yeah. rest of it. Because it's not just the machines, it's everything that goes with that and then the stock and, you know. And staff. Uh, and, yeah, and staff and all the rest of it. So I'd say build it up slowly. I mean, yeah. you can start with very little. if you, Especially if you're careful about the products you're making and how you're making them. Uh, we still don't have, in terms of our equipment, nothing's particularly high tech. You know, it's all good, mm. good kit, but we've not got anything fancy because we, we don't need it. And we've designed the collections to be that way. Mm. So if someone comes to you and says they want to make something that you can't make... We, we, we find someone that can do it. Yeah, exactly. And we send them to them instead. So, Diana, you've obviously... I've seen the garments you can make. You've got, you know, lovely, fine binding and things like that. You must need quite a lot of different machines. How much did you invest? Oh, so I run the business with my partner there too. And um, I don't know if he allows Is me he to in say, the audience as well? Is. Yay. <laughs> um, I don't know if he allows me to say that because he, he manages the finances of the business. But we did put our ISAs. We pulled out our ISAs. You put your savings in. Yeah, we put our it. savings in. We could have bought a house. So we could have put money towards a house and we put it towards a business. Not in one go, like Adam mm. said. We, you know, drip by drip. And um, machines weren't that expensive. But the, over time, the operators who are working, the, working on the machines, that kind of adds up. And uh, it is a service that we are providing. Um, and the service is coming from the people. So we value the people who are working in our studio. And, you know, we take care of them, and which means we give them a great environment. And if you have good people, you have really yeah, good outgoings as so well. so true. Yeah. And David... Yeah. I want to set up my own little knitwear factory. I am not joking, actually. I would love to think, sod this saving UK manufacturing. I'm just going to become a manufacturer myself. I love your machine. So how much, if I want to buy one of your machines and just knit away, Okay. how much, so, what's my investment? So the entry machine is around 30,000. And then we, we have some machines in our studio that are topping a 100,000 each. Wow. So what's, I say I did knitwear as part of my degree at, uh, at uni many, many years ago on the old domestic machines. Yeah. Um, what technical knowledge do I need if I want to have one of these new machines? Um, you need some technical help. We have, because we are the seller of the machines, 
obviously, if you look, our investment is big, but we change the machines over and we sell the machines as ex-demo and we get new machines in all the time. So it is a rolling uh, set of machines that allows us to keep at the top of technology and our people trained. So, mm. But we, we, gem- we have sold a lot of these machines to people who have worked with us and then they want to go off and take the machine for themselves. Yeah. So I would say, you know, in the, you know, we've probably sold 12 or 15 machines to designers where they've got them in the garages, they've got them in small units. You know, there's a lady upstairs who's bought a couple of machines, she's taken it to the farm. So, and we, within, the, within this, we'd give a training package on how to handle the machines. You know, I'm a little conscious now of selling equipment to people who can't handle it because it does come back and it gives it hurts us because we're because forever. It, technically, they can't get around yeah, the technology. I, I think if you're realistic in your goals and you set out, you know, this is what I want to do to start with and then move on from there, then we have a, a train, access to a training school in, in Germany where, uh, as a customer, you can attend this training school. We, have, we teach in Leicester. Um, generally, if you're buying a machine from us or taking that step away from us, because unlike a lot of businesses, we want our aim is to not only uh, fill the design center, but to fill the trade. Mm-hmm. So we want customers to grow and leave us and then go to factories and with knowledge. So they can arrive at a factory and say, look, I've been working with Stoll. All of my developments are done. Look, can you make these garments for me? Yeah, I was going to ask and I what think people that's, do. That's the next step. That's, so, yeah. And if they want to make the step into a machine, and that is also, that is also fine, you know, we've had, and we can, we can handle it. And hopefully, sometimes they actually work on their machine within our premises for a few weeks without, with us watching, and then we'll deliver it. You know, it's like having the baby delivered, <laughs> you know, and then, and then hopefully they, they, they can handle it. But we've got a team of people and all of our technicians are very close with the customers and they're on the telephone talking backwards and forwards and we can generally solve, solve problems, you know. But as we've all said, you know, it's, it's not easy. You know, yeah. you've got to be committed and you've got to want to do it. Mm-hmm. So, Diana, what do you do if, if you're making for someone in small quantities and then they, they're um, suddenly wanting to order much bigger quantities, where, what, do you, what do they do next? So, we have, uh, we take up, up to 100 units and the, we can take more units, but then we would create a bottleneck in our small studio for, for only one client. And as a practice, we try to work on two or three clients at the same time at the same time. Um, if, if the quantities are bigger than what we can take care of, we send it to other manufacturers. Uh, I mean, even before I met Adam today, we've sent a few clients over to Adam's yeah, side, and uh, we have partnerships with other manufacturers who we know have been going, may have bigger setup and can handle bigger quantities. So that's the main thing, that manufacturing is such a close-knit community and it doesn't need to be exclusive. Everyone knows each other and the partnerships are very, very important because you learn from each other. You know, a product that I'm working on could be a different product that Adam is working on and uh, I could learn so much from him about something that I could, or I could be given a challenge and send it Adam's way because it's completely out of my expertise. Well, that's the thing, because we, we, we'd like that. If you come with bigger quantities, fantastic. There are yeah. systems set up to deal with that, as long as it's base, simple-ish products. Um, so that, that has been really great, that we can start swapping work, really. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's such a good And that's part of the reason as well I set up this event, So Absolutely. because I realised a lot of the manufacturers didn't actually know each other. Exactly. So I set up the event so all the manufacturers could network as much as you know everyone could uh, come and meet them and find them. I think, yeah. I think one of the main things that we focus on is that it's... It is a designer's dreams and the designer's ambitions. And if we can't deliver something for the designer, even if it's a sampling, maybe because of a combination of prices, probably technicality, we still want to help them because that is our vision. That's, that's why we set up Maze London. And if we can send them towards someone who can help them, even if that means that we may not be the right people at this point of time for them, it is still helping them in their journey. And I think that's the main thing. It's, it's a lot of financial investment, creative investment, time that designers are putting it out there to produce, their, to develop their collection and then taking it, taking it to market to produce the collection. So, so yeah. Definitely. So, do we have any questions from the audience? I think that's a good time. Who's, who in the audience, anyone here would like to ask one of these guys? 
question. Lady over there in the yellow shirt. Uh, my name's Delith. I work for Premier Vision London office. Um, my question is to... Uh, sorry, the lady in the middle. Diana. 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 Yeah. Um, you say you need your student, the new um, designers, to come prepared with a tech pack and a, a, a really good spec. Um, how well are the colleges... Um, training people these days to be able to come with those skills to set up a business? So the colleges are actually equipping the students. I didn't study here, but I know Adam, Adam did. And, yes. um, but the students that have come in, they come thoroughly prepared with their mood boards and the color boards and the spec sheets. Um, however, our business also welcomes people who may not be from the fashion industry and they could, this could be their second career and they've been um, an investment banker for the last 10 years and suddenly felt that this is not for me and I want to set up my own sustainable brand. And uh, it is those designers that we feel may not have even the idea of a tech pack. They know the product, they know the brand really well, they know what they want to achieve, but uh, and they have an idea. So we guide them through the spec sheet and um, like I think you mentioned that there's a screening process we do and we give them a checklist that we say, have you done this? Have you done this? If you haven't, we are right here to guide you through this process. And um, I studied design in India and we worked in the same design process which most colleges here do. So I don't think the students who are coming from uh, colleges have any any issues with spec sheets, but it's designers who are setting this up all on their own without any prior knowledge. Okay, thank uh, you. What about I'd certainly say oh. sorry on that, though. There, there, there's a lot more we could be doing with students uh, in terms of business skills and generally the stuff around. Often they have very good technical knowledge, but it's all that other stuff is where they start to, to fall down, and we see that a lot. There's a lot of... Uh, extra work that needs to be done in kind of raising the profile of what it means to be self-employed, what it means to start out on your own that just isn't covered at all by a lot of the courses. It is by some, but not all of them. How about you, David, how do you feel the knitwear colleges are training up? Um, do you, are your machines in a lot of the colleges? Yeah, we've got machines in London College of Fashion, Central St. Martins, Nottingham Trent, Ravensbourne, Goldsmiths. So we, we, we're well covered. We do see a difference between uh, the people that come from uh, Central St. Martins are far more creative mm, and, 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 yeah, and out yeah. there and um, we have to dis, you know sort of rein them in to create a commercial product whereas if you come from Nottingham Trent uh, they are very much more uh, practically uh, practically taught I think mm. and their, their, their knowledge of garment construction is a lot greater than some of the London fashion universities. So I would probably want to add to that. I think um, working with some students now, I feel that they're taught the technical part of it on, on how to construct a garment. But I think what's, um, what's lacking is the skill. Mm. I, I think that it would be great to know that fashion designers can actually graduate and work as a pattern cutter or as a seamstress or as a knitwear engineer or as a technician working on creating a product. And that's the only way we can introduce skill in the UK industry from the UK colleges because there's so many graduates every year from so many of the fashion colleges. But I think the glamorizing of fashion is coming down to being designers, but not the creators and you know the people who are actually making mm. stuff behind all yeah, of that. Most definitely. definitely. <laughs> 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 with that in mind, uh, we work a lot with Harriet Watt in the Borders in Scotland, and they have a fashion technology course, and they are the most skilled. Uh, fashion students we've ever come across. We've already hired three of them. They're absolutely fantastic. And they are teaching proper making skills. And that is a course four years and they just all they do is make. Great. Absolutely brilliant. And they're coming out industry ready. It doesn't Brilliant. take much to bring them into a machinist job that's straight in. Uh, think, and we need more of that. Yeah. I think as employers, you have to also be uh, uh, smart on the way you advertise the job because we uh, asked for a, a knitwear technician uh, got very few applicants and changed the job to technical designer and got about 150 yeah. applicants. Really? <laughs> yeah. that's, br that's really Gosh. interesting. Yeah. And did you advertise it on social media instead yeah. of... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yeah. did the person that you take on through that technical designer job, are they still with you? Yeah, we, 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 actually, we've worked with quite a few people and I think uh, we're based in Leicester and there's a lot of people who have got a love affair with London and we, we do find it a, li a little difficult to attract you know, people to, to Leicester. But 
when we started the business, we looked in London, we searched premises in East London, and we, when we worked it all out, I think that eventually we worked out it would be too expensive to operate what we do in London. Yeah. So. Ah, you need to speak to, I saw, um, there's a whole sort of fashion hub happening in East London, mm. and wouldn't it be, have you thought about doing maybe a second, isn't it design centre? Maybe there's one to be done in Scotland at one point. Definitely. One to be done in East London. Yeah, we, we've thought we've thought about it a few times. You're always a little nervous not to water down the business that you've already mm. you've already give you've yourself already more got. stress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any more questions? Hello, um, my name's Mustafa, and I'm the CEO at Gosha London Limited. We've been producing high-end luxury women's wear in glorious Britain for over 23 years, and no one in their right mind would really go into fashion, would they? <laughs> I think, I think we don't choose fashion, fashion chooses us. Definitely. My question is, obviously you've, it's directed to all three of you, you've had highs and you've had lows since you've started and you're probably going to get more highs and more lows during your careers, <laughs> I'm sure of that. I just want to know what your lowest point was and what your highest point was and if you can be perfectly honest with that, please. That's oh. a great... Who's oh, going to go gosh. first, Adam? Oh, wow. Okay, the lowest one, I can tell you exactly when that was. We Before we started doing standardised units and we were taking on basically any work we could get, uh, we had an order uh, and this client was adamant that they wanted bags made out of uh, a synthetic like pleather, fake leather and silk and they wanted those two materials to be stitched together into a clutch bag which doesn't work and looked horrible but we okayed it and we, we got it kind of looking right and the samples looked okay uh, and then they sent the material for the order and we cut the whole up uh, and then there was an element of it that needed pressing where the silk was kind of near to the pleather and on the sample it hadn't melted. But on the 90, we just cut, they just destroyed it. And then what happened was the, the sample that we both signed off on, they changed the material without letting us know, and we just knackered the entire lot. So in that instance, when that does happen, <laughs> what do you do? Um, uh, try not to cry, I guess, I if I'm honest. Jump off um, the well, well, we ended up footing the bill for the new material because we, we should have spotted it and then basically said to the client, no, we're not doing any of this in the future. Mm. But what that did, that then led us to the standardization because we realized that for what we were doing at the scale we were doing it, there was no way we could keep taking on that level of risk per order. So it did help push us into something much better that works now, which is uh, fantastic. And hi highlight was probably uh, this last year we got through a client of ours, we got a, uh, an order from the Bauhaus in Germany oh, wow. for our standardized units, which is exactly the same as what we're normally producing. And it just proved the scope that we, we can do with this standardized catalog. And that was fantastic. You also won an award recently. Oh, didn't yes. You? you can't mention the about award. that. Oh, yeah. We got Manufacturer of the Year in Scotland as well, you know, we just as a side note. <laughs> <laughs> Diana, start with your low. Um, I must say, but I have to add that I'm so impressed with your business model. I wish my brain thought like that because uh, this is, it's, it's amazing what you're doing with your business model and you should go to the website. It's beautiful. Uh, I can start with my lows first because, um, again, we are a small business. We are two people who are business owners. It's self-funded. Um, and unfortunately, Lowe's kind of con connects with cash and cash flow. And I think our low was when, um, I, I hate to say this because my employees are here, but um, <laughs> we had literally no money to pay our, um, our staff on the Monday because our client did not pay us on time on the Thursday. And we just, we just had to somehow beg, borrow money from friends and make sure that our bank was full with money so that we could pay out our staff and then call up our clients on a Friday afternoon and say, can you please pay us? Don't tell us that you're not going to pay us today until two weeks from now uh, because, you know, our business depends on it. We pulled through it. It was, it was a pretty, pretty bad place for Josh and I to be in, but... Um, we learned from, from that experience, we came out stronger, and we've now just put in a policy that we just work with 20% deposit upfront, mm -hmm. so, because that means we are not front-loading all the production, and then the balance on delivery, so that we're not waiting for money to come into our account, and that just avoids that stress, and um, working with your partner can be challenging, and bringing that <laughs> tension back home can be interesting, mm -hmm. um, but we, we pulled through that, so that was, that was a low. 
The high has been um, getting an amazing team that I have right now. I think I'm really, really proud of the work culture that we have created in the company. Um, and I'm really, I'm also grateful that uh, Josh, my business partner, who comes from a non-fashion background, has been able to adapt to this industry, this challenging industry, so organically and being able to create this, cultivate this culture within our company to be passionate about the product that we're delivering. And um, what we do is we get, we print out the work that our machinists would have done or our cutters would have done and we ask them to sign it. And then we put it on, on the wall and that basically shows accountability from the designer to who's made your clothes, from the machinists of how they're making their clothes and where it's going to. So it's not just on a hanger, it is being sold on Harrods or it is being sold, it is walking down the catwalk and you know that, that brings a lot of joy and pleasure to me for, for sure. David, lowest points. Uh, <laughs> wasn't when we had to crane your knitting machine in a couple of years ago. In the yeah. <laughs> Getting the bill was the lowest point. <laughs> I think, uh, like, I've been in business for, you know, a long time. I've had some, you know, very much highs and lows. And I suppose that uh, for a long time I worked only with the trade. And it became tougher and tougher. And, you know, I also bought and sold second-hand machines. And when people would see me turn up at the factory... I ended up being viewed like as the Grim Reaper. So uh, um, the idea of starting the studio was not only for a new income stream, but it was actually to work with people who actually enjoyed what you were doing. And rather than the hard-nosed pressing of the, our customers were being pressed by the stores, everything was press, press, press. But then starting the design centre and actually working with people who were happy with what you were doing and uh, working every day with people who were positive certainly gave me a, a more positive outlook, you know. Brilliant, love it. Lady here's got a question. Hi, uh, I'm Tatum. I launched Tatum Diamond London, which is a luxury handcrafted leather bag and accessory. I launched six months ago, sort of coming from not a fashion background. Yeah. How have you guys managed to get to where you are now? So I, I, I didn't go to fashion school. I couldn't sew a cushion last year um, you know so going from that to being able to make a product but then understanding all the the pitfalls and the highs and lows and you know you get people saying come to fashion week it's great it'll only cost you 10 grand you know to walk down a runway or something but that doesn't you know it necessarily equate into anything so how do you how do you make those decisions and decide where you want to be Wow, that's a good point. I mean, uh, in, terms of, in terms of the making, I learned on the job. I'm a printmaker. I'd had no practical making skills. So you, you learn quick when, when your mistakes cost you money and time. Um, so essentially, yeah, the last four years for me have just been a crash course in how we, we do all of that stuff. But I think that's good. And sometimes if, you, if you've got a, a business partner that does have some knowledge or, or someone or a mentor or someone you can find to talk to about that stuff, because sometimes that having those two perspectives on it can be really, really useful. Do any of you offer that? <laughs> Unfortunately <laughs> not. No, I'm sure that there's, there'll definitely be someone you can speak to and yeah. that's definitely the way, way to do that in terms of that, that technical knowledge because you really do need to kind of get to grips with that. Uh, but yeah, just you, you'll figure it out and you'll, you'll get to know what feels like a, a good decision and doesn't. After you've been burnt a few times, you start to get some nous about really what the decisions you should be making and go with your gut. You usually, you can feel it if it feels like the right thing to do or not and just, yeah, be really clear about that with yourself yeah um, so there's no shortcuts in fashion at all and if there yeah, there are shortcuts um, you know it's not going to last yet and it's going to last you um, so the main thing is don't give up and make sure your goals are very clear keep realistic goals um, everyone can be wanting to showcase at um, London Fashion Week and that could be your ultimate goal but there are many micro goals before that and try to achieve that and I would suggest speak to someone at UKFT because we find that really helpful. Um, lady from UKFT is right behind you. Right behind you. <laughs> <laughs> um, the reason I say UKFT because they do this um, they do these evenings called UKFT Rise and it is mainly for um, entrepreneurs like yourself where they connect people and make sure that you're not alone in mm. your journey and you're connected to other designers and we are part of UKFT and they um, matched us with our mentor which has been an amazing amazing experience and he's a gentleman sitting right next to you so <laughs> so so good seat yeah um, but 
you have to be real with yourself. You, everyone will have their own limitations and um, sometimes finance can be a limitation, but I just say that the only thing which will limit you is yourself. So as soon as you define your goals and you work towards that, you'll get there. Uh, I, I was just going to say, if you're around it long enough, you can seem to be able to talk the talk. And uh, <laughs> that uh, if uh, I couldn't operate without the team of people that work, work for me, mm. I can uh, make the intro, I can uh, invite you in, I can sell my own product, but the team that I've got, they, del they deliver. And I think that, you know, we've all spoke, you know, when we get to a certain level and we're employing people, that the team of people around you are, mm. that, that, is, that is everybody's USP, you know? Yeah, mm. exactly. Uh, any more questions? No? I think um, one thing I would want to point out for anyone that hasn't seen it, um, Adam, on your website, yes. you talk about um, the circular, yes. um, circular yes. economy, don't you? Yeah, and minimal wastage. And it'd be quite good to hear from all of you about how you're trying to avoid, because the fashion industry you know, is a very wasteful industry. Definitely. You're doing some great things to avoid that, aren't you? Do you want to tell everyone about that? Yeah, I mean, we're doing everything we can. It's incredibly difficult and the research is, a lot of it's still being done on what the best practice is. And we're trying to reduce waste at the beginning. So if you go on our website, all of our products have clear fabric requirements and mm. similar to the way you work. So you shouldn't have to over order to begin with. There's a calculator there as well. So you literally put in the products you're looking for, the dimensions, and it will spit out a meterage, exactly what you need within sort of a 10 percent margin as well and, and yeah and one of the things we've done is we've tried to map out and that's what's on the website how we fit into the circular economy i think there's still it's a bit of a loose term we have an opinion on what it means for us uh, mm. that does differ slightly from what some of the major organizations that deal with the circular economy say but we kind of don't care because we think we're, we're getting some of that uh, and it's so it's yeah it's an interesting time for that and there's a lot of work that still needs to be done and there's a lot of work that needs to be done throughout businesses and through business chains I don't know whether a singular business can really ever truly be circular unless it's part of a chain of businesses that it's working with. So if anyone want, does want to chat through that, we're, we're more, ha more than happy to do that and see whether there's ways we can link up because we still don't have a proper end of life um, thing factored in for our products so that there's no contingency for what happens when they do reach the end of their useful life. So we are looking at ways that we can do that. Yeah. Diana, have you got anything to add on? you know, waste, wastage and avoiding it. I mean, avoid waste where we can. Um, and I think costing and mm. costing at the sampling and, and also note that a slightest change in the design of the garment, it could be adding two centimeters on your skirt hem circumference, could change the costing and it could make mm. the fabric consumption go from 2.5 meters to 3.2 meters because it doesn't fit in the width of the fabric. Completely. So I think you need, to, uh, that's why I, what we like is that we are quite transparent and you can see that change happen, that as soon as you change the hem circumference, for, for example, you're using a meter more of fabric mm. and it's a question that you should be asking yourself, is that really worth it? Mm. Or can we just forego that or compromise that design change and be more conscious of how we're using fabric? Um, but what we do with our, um, just like yourself, Adam, I heard on your podcast, that we send all the scraps back mm. to the designers and even if they're like small pieces which they could probably cover buttons with or make mm. binding with, uh, Unfortunately, there is wastage, but we try to keep that wastage to the minimal possible. And um, if there are non-IP fabrics, then you know we can donate them to charities for homeschooling and things like that. But quite often, we try to introduce it back into the designer's collection by suggesting maybe they can make some packaging for them, like some drawstring bags, or um, one of the designers, we used her last season collection as binding only on the waistband. So there was enough fabric to make binding, but not enough fabric to do a production run. So we suggest ways how you, know, you could use the spare fabric and reuse it in your business cycle. Because you've paid for that already. Exactly. You might as well get the most that's out money, of it. That's money it's just a, gone a, from a the designer. The, a lot of this stuff, it will save you money as well as being better for the environment. So it's a win-win, really. That's a really good point. The development cost is not only on your patent or the product. It's the money that you have spent on the fabric, the mm. shipping. If you have visited a factory overseas, per se, your hotel stay, your mm. dinner stay, you know, your shipping costs, for example, bringing it back. So all of these are just hidden costs that go into the cost of making as well. So... 
David, the knitwear industry, how wasteful uh, um, is it and is it getting better? All those plastic cones. Yeah, no, mm. they're, they're cardboard now. <laughs> um, but uh, we are, there's a twofold attack. The, the machinery itself is now moving on so quickly. Uh, at a minimum now, most, I would say 95% of the knitters that are left in the UK are knitting to shape. So there is no cutting waste. Mm. And the machine technology now will allow you to knit what we will call sequentially. So it will, it will knit back, front, sleeve, sleeve, trim. And, can, and then you can even ask it to knit five small, 10 medium. You can even oh, ask wow. it to knit in ratios. So there is also uh, technology out there, machines out there that will knit a completely seamless garment. Um, <coughs> excuse me. You can't do everything seamlessly, but that, there, is no, there is no sewing in this garment, mm. apart from a few uh, ends. So, and on the other side, the yarn companies, and uh, there's a lot of drive in towards recycled yarns, mm. eco, eco mm. yarns. And I think what, what we see is it's sometimes very hard for the designer to sell this if the story about the yarn is so complicated, like a sustainable viscose. If somebody tried to explain the whole backstory, mm. the person you're selling to will be bored in five minutes. But <laughs> if I give you a yarn that's made out of recycled bottles, or there is, uh, there's cashmere now that is made from mm. recycled jumpers that is now cut mm. back up and, you know, post-consumer. So I think there, we're all trying, you know, and it's up to the designers and the people selling it to find their niche of mm. how, how, it can, how it can work. But is it something you're seeing, you're getting asked for a lot more? Yeah, a lot, a, a lot more yes. now. And every, all the designers want their own USP and ec ethical story, you know, and, uh, yeah, I think that is... Uh, as it becomes more niche and the, the middle market is gone, so we're either at very fast fashion or we're at niche, higher, higher end. Mm. This middle ground has completely disappeared. Definitely. And I think the consumer is more aware now. And I, the, because the demand is coming from the consumer, the designers are attempting to supply that. And um, I overheard one of our clients at a buying house at a really well-known um, online website has a budget only to buy into sustainable brands or ethical brands, which is great. That means they, the buyers themselves are being conscious of where they're buying from, what they're buying, and who the consumer is buying. Really? Um, so this online retailer, you can't, probably can't name, can't say. they have a buyer just buying specifically... They have a budget right. which buys only sustainable or conscious brands, mm. if not sustainably brands. Wouldn't yeah. it be great if there was buyers from department stores who also, yeah, just bought made there, in the UK. Yes. Exactly. And there is a lot of challenge with all of this as well. I mean, there's a lot of mi misinformation in the news about materials and things that are going on. And it's worth anything you read, just check it. We've been at a few conferences. There, there was one at the Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, which is essentially just experts breaking down the nonsense we've been told over the last few years. Uh, and that only now are they starting to actually do some of, some of the research again to make sure that some of the findings are actually correct. So especially when it comes to microfibers and organic cotton and things like that, really do some digging mm. about the materials you're using and how you're using them and why you're using them, because you might find that your assumptions aren't correct about them. But again, if anyone wants to talk about that, I can get on my soapbox <laughs> about it later. Yeah. That's really interesting <laughs> advice. Brilliant. OK. Right, well, thank you very much, you three. You've been amazing. Let's have a big round of applause for our panellists. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Make It British podcast. I make an episode every Tuesday and Friday, plus there's also bonus episodes occasionally. So don't forget to subscribe in your favourite podcast app so that you get notified every time a new episode goes live. And if you enjoyed the show, I would really love it if you left me a, just a little review on iTunes. The more reviews this podcast receives, the more people will discover it and the more we can spread the word about making in the UK. Thanks once again for listening to the Make It British podcast. Bye bye.